0: Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. As always, this episode is brought to you by EDMProd.com, an online resource dedicated to teaching electronic producers the tools and tactics needed to make better music. If you want to level up your production skills, whether it's learning the basics, writing better music, improving your mixes, or developing a more creative mindset, we've got you covered. Now, in this episode, I have a chat with Lynn Grid. Lindgren is a multi-platinum award-winning music producer and songwriter originally from Berlin, Germany. His lengthy list of credits includes Dua Lipa, BTS, Halsey, Sia, Cheat Codes, Millennium, and so much more. Needless to say, Lindgren is a proven track record in the music industry and I was personally really excited to have him on the show. Now, In this episode, we start off with Lindgren's background, discussing how he fell into writing and producing pop music. We discuss what he learned attending the renowned pop academy in Germany and how he built his first connections in the music industry. We also discussed the importance of writing camps to his development as an artist, both to help him sharpen his skills and to connect with other artists. Now, On the writing side, we really spent a while diving deep into Link songwriting workflow. We discussed where he finds inspiration for writing, writing alone versus with collaborators, and why speed is an essential component to his workflow. He breaks down where he picked up his lyric and melody writing skills, offering his best advice for songwriters looking to improve their skill set. He also discusses what he's learned working with producers and songwriters like Yoad Nevo and, and Virtual Riot and some of the other lessons that he's picked up from the many collaborative sessions that he's had over the years. Later on, Lemgren explains how to know when your music is good enough to release, how he picks what projects he does and doesn't work on, and why he doesn't have a solo artist project despite all the credits and expertise that he has. He also discusses what a typical week looks like for him, which will be great to hear for anyone that's interested in getting into songwriting and how he personally balances writing with everyday life. Overall, Lindgren offers heaps of advice for aspiring songwriters, whether they're looking to develop their technique, build up connections, or simply to start releasing music, and I'm excited for you all to hear the interview. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the episode. Here's the EDRM Podcast with Lindgren. All right, welcome back to the EDM Podcast today. I'm joined by Lindgren. How are you doing today? Hey, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's a beautiful
1: day in Burbank, California.
0: So to start, I want to learn a bit more about your background with music. You can go back as far as you'd like, but I'd like to learn what initially got you into music and later on, how you kind of got your start in the industry. Um, <laughs> I like to say I had no
1: choice. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I grew yeah. up in a very musical household. My dad is a bassist. And uh, my, my mother is a songwriter and comedian. And my stepmom is a, a theater producer. So I was really around just like a ton of culture from the get-go. So I started learning to play the piano when I was six. Didn't really love it. But I definitely, I was, I was pretty good. But um, it wasn't really my thing. Yeah. And then two years later, I wanted to learn like a cool instrument so i (laughs) so i um just grabbed one of my dad's basses and was like teach me this and so i started um playing the electric bass and then shortly after the double bass but i was i was a very late bloomer so i was very very short to play Mm -hmm. an upright bass so that was kind of a challenge and then when i was eight for the holidays my parents gave me a computer And that computer had Cubase on it. And then I was like, wow, this is my instrument. This is really what I want to do. I actually still have the floppy disk from
0: 1998.
1: (laughs) 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 Framed. Yeah, it's framed in my studio. Um, And I just started like I had like eight tracks of MIDI, I think four stereo channels or something before my computer blew up. And I just started like putting some little drum loops here and there painting in some MIDI with my mouse. I didn't have a MIDI controller or anything and yeah. just like making little loops. And I thought it was so cool. And I yeah. just kind of stuck with it.
0: I feel like that's like a pretty ambitious start for that age, especially when Cubase in 1999 wasn't too robust. So what really drew you to that when, I'm sure there weren't a lot of people around you that were specifically creating music in a DAW? Yeah, with with me kind of, th- there,
1: there were a lot of people around me Technically, because my dad, especially in the 90s, played a ton of sessions because back then, like session musicians really just still had work, you know. So you would go, I I would just go with my dad into the studio and he would, like the producer would just start recording him and he would just either just like play loops for like loop libraries or he had like a song that he would replace like a MIDI bass on just with real bass and stuff. And so I was really fascinated with this like banning sound onto a hard drive kind of aspect of it. But I didn't really, I wasn't really interested in like the engineering side of it. I always thought it was more of like, I saw the parallels between looking at a like sheet music and my, my computer screen and seeing Cubase. It kind of felt the same to me. Yeah. You know how you arrange different tracks over each other. It kind of looks like the manuscript to a symphony. And since I grew up around so much classical music, I kind of drew that parallel from the from the beginning, and was like, "That's how I want to compose. That's how I want to work. I don't really care about these little dots and sticks with little flags on them. I I want to paint MIDI, and I want to like cut up some drum loops. And so that was my Lego.
0: Yeah, it's almost like you found the language and instrument that made the most sense to you. Like. You said you started with piano, you tried piano, that didn't really work. Tried piano or tried bass after, it didn't really work. You're just finding what is the specific thing in music that I really naturally gravitate towards.
1: Exactly. It's just that that's, I always say bass is my instrument, even <laughs> though I am, I am pretty proficient at piano and, and bass and stuff. And I really think that is really important to be a good producer, to at least be proficient in some sort of instrument, just so you can yeah. write a song outside of a computer. But honestly, like that is my language.
0: So you kind of jumped into that when you were nine, 10 years old. What did music and music production look like for you going into your teen years? I started playing in bands when I was, I
1: think, 13, just like little like cover bands. We would like play Green Day songs and think we're so cool. And like Meredith Brooks and stuff, you know, the (laughs) stuff that was cool back then. (laughs) (laughs) Alanis Morissette covers. Um,
0: (laughs) I know, right?
1: Um, And so... Somebody had to record that stuff. And so I, I played the bass, but mainly I was just like, yo, let's just get this to a point where we can like kind of record this into a computer. And it never came out the way I wanted it to. I mean, A, I didn't really have that many microphones or um, an interface that could track that many instruments at once. And so I, I kind of fell out of love with the band thing and like just started hanging out with my rapper friends. And um, I had a ton of those. And I, I started rapping myself, but that was not really my thing. I was not as good as the other kids. And so like I became that guy in his attic with yeah. the computer and the makeshift uh, vocal booth that just made beats and some kids dropped by and just like
0: laid down some raps. At what point did you start to take it seriously as if this was going to be the career for you? Were you already thinking about that when you are in high school, like 14, 15?
1: Honestly, no. When I was 14, I got cast on a TV show in Germany, and I spent most of my teenage years on set. And so I kind of thought I was going to be an actor or some sort of film producer, director, something like that. But then I slowly realized, like, I don't like that. I don't like, that.
0: <laughs> I don't <Yeah>.
1: like <laughs> actors that much. Um, they talk too much. Yeah. And so yeah. I got, <laughs>
0: I'm
1: an asshole. Um, and so when it became time to, to apply for college after school, I realized the deadline for acting school was over. And I was like, damn, I have to do something for this year. I don't want to be one of those guys that takes a year off and is like a hippie or something. I want to get going Yeah, because I hated school so much. I just couldn't wait to get going with actual life. So I literally just asked my dad, like, is there anything in music that I can do? But I was always kind of intimidated to like follow in the footsteps of all these musicians in my family. I would have to live up to those standards. And he was like, dude, you, you are a musician already. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I am. I didn't really, didn't really notice, but all this time, me like doing bad in school and stuff, it wasn't because I was like chasing girls or, or or I was like I don't know smoking weed or whatever I didn't yeah. do any of that I was just in my studio making beats and so I realized like oh damn there's this there's this school in Germany called Pop Academy that's basically like a Berkeley kind of thing mm-hmm. for uh, for Germans and so I applied there and I didn't have high hopes because they only take like 5 or 6 people out of hundreds of applicants every year and god willing man I I got in and Truly, when I got that letter, I
0: was like, yep, I'm going to be a producer. So I think the idea of music education at a higher level for like a Berkeley or like a pop academy, there's a lot of other ones kind of like that, is always a contentious issue. So how important was attending that school to your development and growth as an artist? I believe it's the same thing with
1: all of these schools. And this might be, no, I'm not afraid to say that. I think the ed- you can't <laughs> teach pop music, dude. You cannot teach pop music. It's something that's just not that graspable. It's not something you can really make into a science. But the network is incredible. You just, in the, let's say, in the real world, it is so hard to be around so many talented people. Because if you apply to an art school, you can't just like have good grades and pay your tuition and get in. In Germany, college is free. You just have to be good to get in. And so every single person there is good, like just by definition. And so yeah. just to have that network of amazing people around you is invaluable. And so the education truly is kind of second rate to me. It's it's not really something that I think about every day. There are some like technical stuff and definitely the business aspect of music business that really helps yeah. me. Um, I can read my own producer agreements and I know the difference between an MDRC uh, publishing deal and a and a recoupment deal. Th- those kind of things that they really helped me. But truly, when I'm producing music, I'm not like, oh yeah, uh, the Fletcher Munson curve really isn't working for me today. <laughs> none of this yeah. stuff really affects how I work every day. But I got my start in the actual industry because I went to that school, and I cannot I can't discredit that.
0: Yeah, it's like this idea that everyone that attends the Berkeley School of Music is the best kid in that local town. It's like all of the best kids from every city in the U.S. all just in a little pocket. And it's not necessarily the direct education, the homework that you're getting and the instructors that you're working with. It's the people that you're around from a student basis. And just naturally, those people are going to be connected and be able to grow and build together. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. It is not, it's not about a degree. You can't show up at Warner Records and be like, Yo, sign me! I got a <laughs> master's degree from somewhere. That, that, that nobody yeah. cares, man. You gotta, you gotta. Somebody once said, I think my manager said this: music schools only work for you if you don't really graduate. Like you, you've made it when you don't graduate because yeah. If if you graduate from music school, that just means like you're probably like not that good to be discovered and over the term of your of your studies, and so yeah. Um, when I when I got my bachelor's degree, I had already moved twice out of the out of the town that I went to college in, and yeah. uh, hadn't attended a class in a year.
0: So, what were those next steps after graduating college? Well, I kind of I would have graduated after three years, but um, because
1: I got a pretty quick start in the songwriting scene. Out, straight out of college I kind of yeah. didn't attend certain classes and I had to go back for an entire year just to finish piano lessons like once every two weeks or something I just had to like go back to my old hometown <laughs> <laughs> and just take a piano class and in the end play a little exam um so it kind of overlapped my next steps out of college kind of overlapped with my college time I met this yeah. girl uh, she she went by Lisa Rowe back then and it was right at the height of like dubstep being cool, and yeah. I was one of two people in Germany that did dubstep. <laughs> it was just <laughs> Virtual right and me, and um, and we both worked with the same singer, Lisa Rowe. And um, so I kind of became her like bandmates. We were like we were Lisa Rowe together, and started playing gigs and got a record deal in the UK, and through that. I met a bunch of publishers who were really interested in publishing me. One day I get this Facebook message from this guy, Robert, who says, Hey, I, I work for this management company in Hamburg, uh, Golden Gate Management. We manage the biggest producers in all of Germany. And I looked at their roster and I was like, wow, that is impressive. Uh, what do you want from me? And he's like, we want to manage you. And I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> and that guy is still my manager in germany he's still he is the reason i'm
0: anybody truly did all of these things come off of your work with the Lisa Rowe project
1: um in the beginning yes but it kind of it kind of fell apart the, the, the dubstep wasn't cool and like the records weren't selling as much as we wanted to and I also just didn't want to be a pure EDM artist, whatever I was at the time. I really wanted to write pop music and, and produce pop music and just multiple things. I wanted to do different genres. And so we kind of disbanded the Lisa Rowe project and I just dove into the German music scene for a couple of years and started working with some people that I, when I was 14, I had like posters of them on the wall. And then all of a sudden I was in rooms with them writing songs.
0: So working in Germany for a few years, at what point did you start to grow into more of an international and U.S. market?
1: This is where um, I have to really thank the concept of writing camps. I'm a, I am used yeah. to be a much bigger fan, but I'm still a big fan of writing camps that are well curated. So um, for anybody that doesn't know what a writing camp is, basically you get a bunch of studios, either in a part of town or you have like a studio complex or you have some remote destination and you make a couple studios out of just a pair of speakers and an interface and a mic. And you just get a bunch of writers together that, that have never met and you give them briefings from labels and just curate sessions each day over the course of this camp where you change out the writers, you change out the producers you change out the, the artist, maybe. And you just write songs all day. And you meet so many new people. It's almost like camp. Like, it's 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 awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like, you you meet so many interesting people. You learn new things on the fly. And so my, my management started sending me on all of these writing camps over all over Europe. And uh, I went to Sweden a bunch. I went to the UK. I went to Santorini. Uh, in Greece. That was incredible. So the reason I'm now in California is also writing camps, because at every single international writing camp that I went to, there would be an American or somebody that worked a lot in LA. And they'd always ask me, are you from LA? Or do you work (laughs) a lot in LA? You just seem like you're from LA. And I was like, what's what's in LA? What's, what's there? <laughs> They're like, well, the music industry. And I was like, but I, oh, I didn't know that. I should check that out. Yeah. And so I, I decided to check out this LA thing and told my, my publisher at the time, Cobalt, and my management in Germany, hey, book me a bunch of sessions. I'm going over there for three weeks. Yeah. And I went over there and um, had a cool time. I just fell in love with the city right away. And just met all these interesting people and just like, I was really feeling the vibe. And like, I think a week into my trip, I called my manager and I was like, dude, by the time I'm 30, I'm living here. No, it's like, there's no (laughs) doubt. And he's like, don't forget about me. (laughs) And um, and on one of my last days, walk into a session and there's this girl, Melanie Fontana, booked with me in the session with another writer called Jolene Bell, who had basically pulled her in. We just like look at each other at the studio and are just like yeah we're not gonna just write a song today are we <laughs> um and then we just like exchanged numbers and went to dinner right after and um the, over the, and i had to go back to germany a couple days later and so like we just started texting and texting and texting for like yeah. six months and it was <laughs> Uh, uh, went from texting to snapchatting, which was cool at the time, RIP. And um, then to FaceTiming, basically every waking hour. And then eventually Melanie was just like, "Uh, this is bullshit, I'm coming to Germany for three weeks. And then we absolutely just started dating, man. (laughs) And And now it's five years later. And we're married and have a house and a cat (laughs) and I have a wood shop. We did it. We absolutely nailed the industry relationship, I think.
0: So at what point did you settle in LA area full time? I moved here full time in 2017, just like two, three months before we got married so i think with that let's kind of slide things over into songwriting production i definitely want to talk about some of the projects that you're working on right now like with bts bonnie and clyde jesse andrea so many things that you're doing but for now i just kind of want to dive into songwriting first thing that i want to talk about is generally when it comes to songwriting are you preferring to work by yourself or do you like the more collaborative approach
1: absolutely collaborative i i am terrified of a blank canvas absolutely just crippling anxiety over just staring at a blank page it's not it's not what i want to do i need somebody to like right off the bat just like either hype me up give me some sort of concept something i can bounce off of a person i i don't work well alone unless there's like an acapella to produce around but when it comes yeah. to songwriting I, I absolutely need other people. It's, I, I'm not the guy that like sits down and writes poetry and then puts melodies to it. That's absolutely not me. I, I like to walk out of a session with a finished song.
0: So when you talk about a concept, what types of things do you really enjoy being pitched? Like if somebody, what does somebody give you that gives you the most energy and excitement just to start writing? I know this is not a
1: really sexy answer but like it truly <laughs> depends on what you're working on. Sometimes yeah. it'll be a title and then you can kind of just be like yo let's write that song and then everybody just kind of knows the song already. When you're mm-hmm. working with people that you have a good flow with and you throw out a killer title that everybody's feeling, it's it's like the song writes itself. But sometimes it'll just be I really enjoy when people have like little voice notes of half a chorus or a chord progression or something just and that they, they bring that in. And then I'm like, yeah, let's feed off of that. Let's, let's, let's roll with that. I'm really, really inspired by, by good melodies. I'm, I'm definitely a lover of good melodies. Lately, I've been finding myself more gravitating towards like a good voice note that we can flesh out that kind of thing.
0: If somebody, let's just say, gives you a chord progression, are you generally more lyric first? Or are you more melody first? What's your kind of preference with that? I'm definitely more of a melody-first
1: kind of guy. But sometimes a melody sounds bad with the wrong lyric. And so it's kind of a middle ground lately where I've just been kind of playing with different just hooky lyrics that you can that you can sing over those melodies. And then sometimes the title sticks, sometimes you just re-lyric the whole thing. But definitely melody-first for me.
0: So... I feel like that might be a little bit of a foreign concept to people that are just getting into writing. So, I know some people approach melody writing, they use certain syllables like a duh or a sa sound to kind of riff off of. Do you have any insight I use on that no. for the way that I'm a na 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 kind of guy. Oh, no, no, na," but
1: I would never just sit there and record myself singing some na 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 some na 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 melodies, and then sending that out to a label. No, 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 absolutely not. This is—it's always a placeholder. I'm not like—I would never send that out. It is important to realize that if you want to write global music, music that works on a global level, you have to speak a global language, and if you just speak English lyrics and the melodies kind of blah, the mom in korea is not gonna understand what you're saying and she can't and if she can't sing it back in her own language or with a na 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 then your song's bad or 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 in germany or in sweden it really doesn't matter i was just trying to make a point of like a different language a, a good melody it works for everybody works all around the world an english lyric that has a bad melody might work in english speaking countries because mm-hmm. you're like, wow, that is so clever. Or like, wow, that really hits me deep. Like that that touches on some emotion on a lyrical basis. But if the melody's not singable, it's not going to be a global song.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned something earlier that I think is one of the most valuable pieces of songwriting advice I can give is if you want to catch your melody, somebody has to be able to sing it back that first time. If they can't, you're lost.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, and also the same goes for lyrics. Same, True. truly. Same goes for lyrics. If you don't understand a clever lyric on the first listen, you have to make it simpler. Um, yeah. I, have a, <laughs> I have a good friend who um, always he's always the guy that challenges the lyric in the in the session, and his catchphrase is "Will Bubba get it?" which means basically, will the guy that's on the way to work in his truck not really listening? Kind of like one eye on the road, one ear to like his engine. Maybe the car's yeah. not running right. Maybe he's texting, which he shouldn't be doing. But will he get that lyric when it comes on uh, on the radio?
0: I mean, I think that's a great metric, just thinking about making it as palatable and as easily digestible as possible.
1: Yeah, it's pop music, dude. It doesn't mean yeah. it doesn't need to be silly or it doesn't
0: need to be stupid, but it needs to be simple. On your end, how much refinement does it take to get? both the melody and the lyrics in that pocket where, you know, you're not singing nursery rhymes, but it's still something that the average person can kind of retain most of the first time through. Again, super unsexy answer. Sometimes it just happens. Sometimes it's just
1: magic from the get-go. And sometimes it's a three-session kind of teeth-pulling kind of deal. But the songs I'm most proud of are the ones I worked
0: hardest on. So I think one thing that's really important in kind of your side of the industry is being able to write specifically for different singers. So kind of talk about that when you're working with like a BTS, I know you worked with a Halsey track, all these different artists. How much are you thinking about the like kind of tone and range of the singer that is going to be performing and recording the vocals that you're writing?
1: That's a phenomenal question. I love that. Um, It is an art, truly, to be able to make a song that sounds like somebody else is already singing it without trying too hard, without appropriating their language, because then yeah. they could do that themselves. In terms of international collaboration like BTS, it would be analyzing their range, just checking out which singer has what range. Um, can they hit that note? Can they hit that note confidently? Do I want Do I want it to sound like they're pushing themselves a little bit? All this stuff... Um, but also, I, I do the same thing with American singers, where I just like if I'm like I really want to tailor make this song for the specific artist. I listen to a bunch of their catalog and just check out with which keys they like, which tempos they like, which topics they like, obviously, and obviously their vocal range because if a singer can't sing something, they're not gonna even try they know, a great artist knows their limits and knows their abilities. That's what makes them a great artist. And so they're never going to even attempt to cut one of your songs if they know, oh, this is way too low for me.
0: So obviously a lot of your process is collaborative. You've got all these different artists that you work with. I think personally from myself growing as an artist, I learned the most from other people, not just like on YouTube or something like that. So I'm curious, are there any specific lessons that you've taken away from some of the songwriters that you've worked with that have just genuinely overhauled and improved your approach towards writing?
1: Bro, literally everything I know, <laughs> literally my entire repertoire of things that I know, I learned from people that were better than me. I yeah. think that's that's the only way to truly improve is to surround yourself with people that are better than you and then eventually maybe surpass them i don't know uh yeah <laughs> I, i'm still working on that but i'm really blessed to be surrounded by people that i truly look up to and um that i need that i that i love and um when it comes to specifics the the will baba get it that rings with me in every single session then um there are certain production tricks or certain production I, want, I don't want to say rules, but, but definitely mathematical equations that work, um, that I took away from working with amazing producers in the past or just looking over their shoulder. Yeah, dude, um, simple things like don't use two bass sounds. Don't, don't overlap bass frequencies. They'll kill yeah. your low end. Proper sidechain compression was something I learned really early on. When I started yeah. out making beats from a from a good friend of mine who's a phenomenal techno artist now, just proper sidechain compression is super important. I have to shout out some people that I that I met in college that, that just like pushed me to finish songs really quickly. And I think speed is something that is mm-hmm. really, really important too. Not lackluster, let's finish this, I wanna go to lunch, but truly just being swift. Being yeah. decisive and being, being quick with decision making, getting that, getting that sound that you hear in your head onto your computer hard drive as quick as possible without making any left or right turns. It's really important to have
0: a vision. And I definitely picked that up from, from producers that I worked with. I mean, I think quickness is one of the biggest lessons that any producer can take away. We just had, um, Wookie on our podcast recently, and he was talking about collaborating with Skrillex. And he said the number one thing that he took away from being in the studio with Skrillex was how quick he was and how decisive he was with every move that he makes.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. That is, that is truly what, um, gave me an instant good reputation with people that I started working with in, in LA, especially like when, when I heard about my own reputation, I was really pleasantly surprised that nobody was like, oh yeah, he just like kind of slapped it together and it kind of sounded okay. But like people said, no, this guy makes your shit sound good pretty yeah. quickly. And at the end of the day, you walk out with a song that sounds good in your car on the way home. So you you feel that artistic satisfaction at the end of the day that we're all craving.
0: So earlier you mentioned that you've been lucky to work with some of the songwriters that you look up to, is there anyone specifically that you can mention, whether or not you've worked with them, that you are just genuinely appreciate from a songwriting front? When I first got signed to my first management company,
1: um, obviously I, I said earlier they they truly manage some of the biggest names in Europe, and yeah, I was really truly honored to be invited to work with Yoav Nabel in London. He's um, the guy behind the waves plugins and he's a phenomenal prolific mix engineer who's mixed um one of my favorite dance records in the world um by sophie alice baxter and um and stuffer see just incredible records just he's so immensely good and makes these just grade a plugins and um he taught me a ton about sonics and a ton about mixing workflow, but also about production. He's he's a phenomenal producer, too. So, shout out Yoad Nevo, other people that I really look up to. Honestly, dude, I, I loved working with Virtual Riot back in the day. He is the... Dude, he's so goddamn fast. Yeah. Like, if, like people say I'm really fast, but that dude is on another level fast. That's yeah. scary. Um, then, um... I love collaborating with Daytrip on on our Dua Lipa song. They're just they're just monsters. They're amazing. Mm-hmm. They just have such amazing instincts for. Um, I don't want to say dumbing it down, but like boiling it down. They're so good at just like yeah, be, at saying no. That's it. We don't need more.
0: They don't overproduce, and it's so good. I think for me, James Blake is one of my inspiration when it comes to production, and he's exactly that. He can strip things down to the bone to exactly what needs to be left there in the mix. Yes,
1: I, I, honestly, that's that's what I uh, that's what I admire the most about uh, Louis Bell. For example, he is yeah. he's the guy that just like goes in on a song and just like strips it to the absolute bare minimum and just brings out that magic that probably was lost along the way of overproducing a song and that is yeah. so dangerous that that's such a danger that producers especially if you work alone by yourself that you've run into is adding and adding and adding and then eventually you've lost that initial magic that you yeah. that 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 brought you to that point of wanting to produce that song to uh to to completion other people i look up to obviously you mentioned him Sonny Skrillex, he's he's a god. He yeah. <laughs> is truly the reason I am not an EDM producer anymore. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm like, this is unreachable. This is an unreachable standard of visionary and just genius. I'm like, I'm making pop music now, dude. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I start making pop music and then the guy... Does Bieber and I'm like well? Mm, Can't get come on, from <laughs> <laughs> leave leave something for us. Um, I absolutely adore Louis Bell. He's he's just such a genius. Um, I'm a humongous fan of Twice as Nice. Everything they do from uh, from the DJ Mustard stuff and the the, the the DJ Snake stuff, they're just incredible visionaries too, and just so to the point amazing producers.
0: So one thing that I kind of want to talk about is right now you are releasing a ton of music that you've worked on. How do you choose what types of projects you should and shouldn't be working on at this point? Whenever I have to say no to something because I'm just super swamped,
1: I have immense guilt about it because I hate making people feel like I'm too good for them. I don't want to give anybody that impression because I truly don't feel like that. I'm truly, truly honored that anybody wants to work with me because... Yeah. Believe me, there's a lot of producers out there and if you have the kind of budget to pay my fee, you have the budget to pay a lot of those people too. And yeah. it's a true honor to work with any of the people that I work with. And I hate saying no. So if I've ever said no to you, sorry, I just didn't have time. It's n- not personal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, th- In terms of what I choose really really love finishing songs so if there's a song already written that maybe just has a piano track or a track that just doesn't work for the label i really really love that so i tend to prioritize those and then i listen to that song and if it catches me if it if it makes me feel something and if i have an if i have an immediate idea about what to do with it i'm i'm willing to make it work no matter what so if i really love a song and you're like, but I only have like this budget. I'm like, let's just do it, dude. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm all for just making great music. But I also just love working from scratch and just making my own babies and getting those cut by artists and then finishing it. And I'm really meticulous with vocals. So I yeah. really, really love recording the artist myself because I'm I'm really OCD about vocals. And I truly think the vocal is the most important thing about a production and so whenever i have the chance to do that i will definitely prioritize that too
0: so i want to pitch you a couple of questions right now that i'm going to gear towards aspiring songwriters because i'm sure there's a lot of people that would like to be in a position to do what you're doing but have no clue how to get there both from a practical standpoint in terms of developing the skill set but then also from a networking standpoint so yes kind of like first off what advice would you give to somebody that is kind of maybe, you know, writes their own songs at home and records a little bit, but wants to develop their chops a little bit more to get to a point where they can work with some of the artists that you've had? I say output
1: in the very beginning is so easy right now. You can release music. You can release music on every streaming platform, on every download platform, even physical form so easily and so cheaply now. You don't need to get signed to a label. You can you can use any of these distribution companies that just charge you four dollars a year for a single or whatever. Um, they're amazing, but make sure it's good. Make sure it's truly good. When you're releasing pop music, especially, there's no minor league. Yeah. Instantly go. Especially in this democratic society of streaming, there truly is no minor league for pop music. So you're going in the ring with Ariana Grande. You're going in the ring. With Taylor Swift, with Panic at the Disco, you're going in the ring with Post Post Malone. So make sure it's good. And if it's not good, don't put it out. Play it to people. Play it to people that aren't in music, that don't, that won't judge you or be jealous of your quality. If you think something's good, play it to somebody who you would want to buy it. You know? Yeah. Play it to a potential customer. Hold your own little focus groups, and say, is this good? do you like this? Would you stream this? Would you put this on your playlist? Would you buy this potentially? Would you want to hear this in a movie? Whatever. It truly doesn't matter. Just make sure it's good.
0: So many artists make that jump before they're ready. So I think that's invaluable advice. And I think make self-awareness a crucial aspect of being a successful artist. You have to be able to honestly look at yourself, look at the music that you're creating and ask yourself, is this ready? And is this commercially viable yet?
1: Yes, absolutely. You need to be brutally honest with yourself because you know what? It doesn't get easier. It gets so much harder because yeah. once you're out there and you have the you have the possibility to send a major label A and R a song, you best believe some of the best songwriters out there have that email too, and they're sending their own songs. So you're going in the ring with them now.
0: How helpful do you feel like it would be for somebody that's trying to get into songwriting to have their own personal artist project? Because as far as I'm aware, you don't have one that you're, you know, consistently releasing on. Not anymore. Um, <laughs> I also there's still there's still
1: some dubstep floating out there somewhere. <laughs> oh my god, I'm mortified. Um, I think artist projects are are great. They're, they're amazing and they really help. And plus you make so much more m- money from it off the, yeah. off the bat. If you own your own masters, or even if you sign a track away and you have that artist share of the master, you make so much more money and you can actually start a business much easier with yeah. an artist project. But also, again, make sure it's good because now you're attaching not only your name, you're attaching your face,
0: you're attaching your voice to that. Kind of given that, why at this point, don't you have an artist project? And I'm saying this because I think a lot of people might say like, Hey, they might be naive and say, Hey, if you're good enough to write for BTS for tomorrow by together, all these people, why don't you just do it for yourself? To be honest, the answer is because I don't
1: know what I would do. I don't, I don't want to be a EDM DJ. I don't want to be a singer. I you don't want me to be a singer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I truly don't know what I would do. What I really, ad, what I really aspire to do one day is to do the Benny Blanco thing, where yeah. he's produced so many hits that he has the time to just be like, "Yo, Halsey, Yo, Ed Sheeran, want to make a song together and we release it under my name and you're just the features on it." How would, the, how does that sound? Or like, th- just that that would be. That would be the way I would want to do an artist project, but I don't, maybe, maybe this is my own insecurity, but I don't think I'm
0: there yet. Yeah. It's tough. I think on my end, there's just so many things that go into getting to the level of the artist that you're working with right now, from a branding standpoint, from a marketing it's, and obviously from a music standpoint, from like a sonic signature, there's just so many moving pieces to get to that level that it takes a lot of time to refine things or to, you know, get people around you to help you get there. Absolutely.
1: uh, I'm, I'm not that much of a, of a self promoter. If you look at my Instagram, I have like nine posts and I do like (laughs) two stories a day and most of them are food or woodworking related, not even music related. Or I like repost something, my management posts or something like that. (laughs) I'm not the best at self promotion. And, um, I'm much better at letting my music speak for me. So that truly isn't something I want to take on right now. I'm still working on on getting a better standing in this industry. So I really, like, I mean, this might sound arrogant, but I truly don't have time to to yeah. be like a self-promoting starting artist. That would be a square one I don't want to hit right now.
0: So... To give people kind of more of an idea of what your day-to-day process looks like, I'm sure every day is different. So let's just assume it is February 2020 before all of this pandemic stuff hit. What would like an average week look like for you in terms of sessions and production, working by yourself and working with other people? Oh, that's a cool question, thank you. So
1: February was a super fun month, I gotta say. Uh, Actually, you know what? I'm gonna pull up my calendar right now because that was (laughs) a fun month. So in February, I uh, met a new artist that I love working with now um, for the first time. His name is AJ Mitchell. He's um, with Epic Records and he is absolutely stunningly and unfairly talented. He is incredible. And we knocked out an amazing song that we just sent to master. And um, then a week later, this whole thing started or like no, nah, a couple weeks later. Then in February, we had this (laughs) we had this funny thing happen where um, I work a lot with Melanie, my wife, and um, we usually do sessions together. But that particular day we had sessions apart from each other and she was in a session in Koreatown and I was uh, here at my studio and suddenly she texts me and she's like, here, look at this screenshot and shows me a screenshot and it was from BTS's label. And it just said, can you be in Seoul tomorrow? <laughs> and we were like, is this a joke? <laughs> and they're like, nope. Uh, can you be on the 1030 out of LAX? We need you tomorrow. And so we literally packed our bags, called our friend who's our cat sitter slash house sitter, and literally jumped on a, on a plane just for four days to finish what's, what came out today. Uh, Can't You See Me by by TXT. And um, we spent four days basically with um, the head of uh, Big Hit Records or Big Hit Entertainment, sorry. And just finished up the song and really went into detail with them. Then we came back and the day after we came back and we were just adjusted to Korean time. We headed down to Hollywood for four days to work with Tiesto. Um, at Conway Studios, and I met a bunch of amazing artists and and songwriters there at the songwriting camp. As I said, I'm a big fan of songwriting camps. But that is not a typical (laughs) month, just so you know. A typical month would be my publisher sets up four to five sessions. I try to take Wednesdays off, which rarely works. So it's usually five sessions a week where we either write from scratch or finish something that we've worked on a week or two weeks before that, um, with different writers, they come in, we, we just sit in the studio for a a while, maybe take a lunch break here and there. And by, I'd say eight o'clock, it's what I call lifetime (laughs) where you just live like a human. Um, and that's when I catch up on some emails like personal stuff thank you notes like fan- <laughs> Jimmy Fallon um no i like I I like to just balance out my my music stuff with uh woodworking as I said I, I build furniture and renovate rooms and uh fix stuff around the house and all this kind of stuff that doesn't just result in an mp3
0: in my email you know just real things that you can touch. How long have you been doing that for? Have you always had that good music life balance or is that a newer thing?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, that is really new. I've, uh, when I first moved to Berlin, I moved there in September and I'm not shitting you with the exception of the 24th of December, I worked until July every single day, every single day sometimes two songs a day. And then I went to LA (laughs) and just continued on that road. And truly the last, before I kind of started slowing down and getting a little more serious about quality control, I probably wrote seven to nine songs a week. And guess how many got cut? (laughs) Not that many. And so I, I would urge anybody that's starting out, work as much as you can because that's how you learn but once you feel like your career is taking the back seat and you're just being busy for the sake of being busy, slow the hell down and focus on quality control. Yeah. And I think it's pro, I might go into another workaholic phase where I'm just working my ass off and just where I'm just super, super busy. But eventually I'm going to realize again write one
0: song that's really good and then take a breather, man. You, Can't write a hit song every day, so why write every day? I mean, I feel like a lot of songwriters focus on that you got to write every single day. So why do you feel like that doesn't work as much for you? Because what are you gonna write about? Who are you writing for? You're writing for
1: Mm non-musicians. The worst thing a songwriter can do is write a song for other songwriters. Then you're gonna sell what fifty thousand copies. That's not that's not what buys you a house. That's not what pays your bills. You want to write for Becky in Minnesota. You want to write for Janice in Connecticut. Yeah. Shout out my <laughs> my mom-in-law. Um, you want to write for those people that are that have normal lives that don't have the privilege of meeting artists in the flesh that that want to relate to to music, want to sing your melodies, want to whistle in the car, want to tell their kids to turn that rap music off, you know? Yeah. You're writing for those people. So you need to understand those people. And for that, you need to live. You need to go out there and have a human life. You need to go to the grocery store. You need to sit in traffic. You need to go to Disneyland. <laughs> you need to go to the beach sometimes. And sometimes you need to just have an annoying moment where you need to go to the DMV and <laughs> take a new ID photo. Yeah.
0: All those things is what people do that buy your music. One of the biggest mistakes that I moved when I moved to LA was put 110% of my effort into music. I think there's like a misrepresentation of what very hard workers do in the music industry where they're talking about writing, they're talking about music, and it seems like that's the only thing that they do. But anyone that's very successful has that balance. They have an input that isn't just other people that are also songwriters. So I think it's crucial because if your input is crap, if your input is just you watching tutorials and you producing or writing, your output's going to be crap too.
1: Yeah, and it's not going to be original either. It's yeah. going to be
0: incestuous.
1: If you just watch some dude make some serum presets online and then you make that preset, that, that's already not original. That's yeah. just you, you honing your skill. And that is incredibly important. That's you honing your craft. But what comes in then is you getting inspired, genuinely inspired, and creating something new with that craft.
0: And I think that's how everyone who gets into this starts. Something happens in life that says, hey, you should go right. And they get off course a little bit when they hyper-focus on some of the technical aspects when it comes to music, but you need to take a step back and remember, hey, chase life and let that inspiration drive your creativity and art. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And it might
1: not work for you in a right Monday and then Thursday again that that might not work for you. And it certainly doesn't for me, but you need to somehow refill. You need to be refresh your batteries and recharge those creative batteries with actual life experience. However, that works for you is up to you. You can pull a poo bear and just not write a song for like five years and then write five songs a day for two and a half years. Yeah. No problem. Do that. If that works for you, try it out. You've got all the time in the world. For me. It
0: really works to just be a normal human, and just take the weekend off maybe. Cool, so a couple more questions and then we'll wrap things up. I just wanna talk about some of the projects that you're working on right now, especially to give people context that don't wanna go through all of your credits right now. So kind of talk about what are some of the projects that you're working on right now? You can talk about specific artists or just releases that have been coming out in the past month or so.
1: In the past month, I, I had a good release month this month. Pretty proud. Um, it was a good month. Um, uh, in the past, in, in the last seven days, I've had like five songs come out, I think. We've been, over the last year, we've been working a lot with uh, Jessica Andrea. She's a phenomenal singer and um, we just put out her debut song, Love Like This. On the same day, we uh, dropped Bonnie and Clyde's new single, Atypical, on, on Ultra Records. That was so fun to work on. And yeah. they're just, they're just cool kids. Mm. They're super cool kids. Then, Yesterday, the new TXT single, which I said we finished up in Korea, came out and I'm super, super proud of that. Um, it's been a long time coming and it was a lot of work and I'm really happy about the response to it already. We have another we have another song on that record called Puma that we also wrote some melodies on. And um, then today... Uh, the debut single of this new girl band called Secret Number came out. The song is called Who Dis, which I actually got to co-produce and write some melodies on. And then at the end of the week, we have another release with um, X-21 member Minji, whose debut single we produced um, a couple of years ago. And she's been kind of taking a hiatus due to some, uh, you know, label stuff. Um, and now she is... On her, she's truly indie now, and is putting out a song called "Lovely" on Saturday. It's a lot of Korean stuff this uh, this week, yeah, <laughs> uh, this month. But that also has to do with the fact that um, we just we just work there a lot, and they tend to they tend to bunch releases together. Just I, I don't know why, but it just happens to be that way. Um, earlier this year, proudest moment in my career happened when Dua Lipa put out Good and Bad, which was just such an enormous, enormous blessing. And she was one of my, what I call white whale artists for a long time. I've been a fan of her since her first record that came out. It wasn't really big in the US, but I was still in Europe and it was just such a smash in Europe. And I was such a fan of her voice and I just, I just love the whole product. It's just phenomenal. And what she did with this new album is absolutely, prolific pop music. I'm just such a fan of hers. And when when last year we got the news that she liked one of our songs and wanted to work on it with us, I was absolutely ecstatic. So last year when she uh, told us she wanted to work on a song with us, that was just such an ecstatic moment for me. And I was so proud. And um, then we finished it up with Daytrip, who I was a fan of before too. So it was just such a magnificent step forward for me career-wise. And the album did so well, and the song came out amazing, and it, it turned out to be a fan favorite. It's such a polarizing song because it's so, like, raunchy and dirty, and the fans either hate it or love it. I, I'm, I'm such a fan of the reaction to it. Obviously, yeah. BTS ON featuring Sia was such an amazing blessing too. I've just had a really good start of the year, <laughs> man. I'm really, really proud, and I'm really humbled by everything that's happening. When we got the news that Sia's on that song, I just like, I popped awake because Korea is 16 hours ahead. So whenever they release some news that we don't know about, it's already out. And we basically wake up to the internet blowing up over those news. So it's usually like when I see my Twitter, like over 200 (laughs) notifications, I'm like, something good (laughs) happened. Something, something big happened. This is going to be a good day. And that day was really, really cool when I found out that CO was on the song and obviously uh, there was going to be two videos and it was such a cool release strategy and the song did so well and the premiere on Fallon was mm-hmm. absolutely glorious. In the future um, for, this, for this year, we have some more stuff planned. Unfortunately, I can't really talk about it. This sounds cocky, but um, and I don't want to <laughs> jinx it and be like nothing set in stone until it's out in this industry. So I just super, super excited over everything that's going on. We've gotten to work with some amazing, amazing artists and um, we have some cool, cool shit in the
0: pipeline. Awesome, man. I love it. Well, with that, we will wrap things up for this episode. If you wanted to learn more about Lindgren and check out some of the music that he's worked on, I'll leave a link in the description to do so. It's been great chatting with you. Appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much.